Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Beth. So during Lent, um, our services will be, uh, we're going to continue through Revelation. So we will have parts of the service that focus on Lent and other parts that focus on Revelation. Sometimes the two will tie together, sometimes uh, they won't. Uh, But we're here today after like just a crazy week. Yeah, and I told the earlier service like, you know, we come here so we can take a deep breath, but we have to be careful not to blow it out on our neighbors (laughs) because it's still covid this intense and it's wearing on us. We're exhausted. There's a lot going on. So um, today, um, I'm I'm excited because I have good news today. Um, the past couple of weeks have been rough. Uh, today, I've got some good news. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be present with us as we hear your scripture read, as we hear the gospel proclaimed. Pray that we would come to see the depth of your love for us today, maybe in a way we hadn't seen it before. We'd come to understand what you're up to, understand more of what you said while you were here with us, as we prepare for you to come again. So open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds, and then help us to open our hands so that we can not only hear and receive this good news, but we can live it and do it each and every day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. So, um, okay, it was the summer of 1999, and Jennifer and I had already been dating for, like, a pretty long time. (laughs) Um, We decided that we would wait until at least one of us finished college before we talked about marriage. I think all along we both had a pretty good idea I was going to take the non-traditional route through college. (laughs) Um, So she had graduated. Uh, She was just starting her first year of teaching. Um, And I had found a way to save up just enough for this cute little ring, and I was ready to pop the question. Now, I've been given permission to share this part of the story with you today. Um, She was not cooperative. (laughs) Uh, So we'd been together for so long, uh, and I assumed that she expected that this was coming. Um, So I had to come up with a little plan to try to throw her off. I wanted to take her somewhere really nice, but we didn't go nice places, (laughs) so... I needed an excuse because it would have been really obvious. So we had a friend who was kind of fancy. He liked nice things. Um, I told her he was coming to town and he wanted to go eat at this really nice restaurant in Houston. Now look, in her defense, it was a long week. She had just started a new job. She was exhausted. Let's just say she was not very excited about getting dressed up to go to a fancy dinner with one of our friends. To the point that I even uh, threw the ring back in my drawer, shut the drawer and said, you know what, fine, she can wait a little longer. (laughs) But I couldn't. I couldn't because I was nervous and I was excited and I was in love and I was ready to do whatever it took to make her my wife. Now, we have spent the past few weeks looking at God's final judgment of evil, of those who choose to follow evil, and it has been terrifying, but we've seen that it's good because it reminds us, it assures us 
that evil will be judged, that it will be destroyed. Evil will not last forever. Next week, we're going to see the final judgment will come to an end as Jesus defeats the dragon, that symbol for everything that stands against God, and that will be once and for all. But I want you to see how John, how through John, Jesus tells us this story. You see, it's after he judges those who follow evil, after the judgment of the institutions on earth that promote and establish evil in this world, but before the defeat of the dragon itself, before that happens, there's an engagement party. <laughs> in Revelation 19, 1 through 9, it's an engagement party. As God's people begin to celebrate not the idea of Jesus' final victory, but the victory itself, Revelation gives us another quick peek into heaven. And this time we see that God is preparing a celebration, a feast. The groom is finally ready to receive his bride. Now to understand all this, we're going to need to talk about some customs and traditions that go back to the time of Jesus. And it's going to help us actually put into context what Jesus has been up to all along. So let's read. This is Revelation 19 verses 1 through 9. In the midst of all the chaos we've been reading the past two weeks, it says this. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. Now, believe it or not, this is the first time the word hallelujah appears in scripture. And Bill Ford, I know you're about to check your version app, but I promise, these are the first time that the word hallelujah appears in scripture. It's actually not even a word in Hebrew. It's an idea. It's a phrase. It's just the idea that you, God's people, you praise God. Now that idea, we see it a lot in the Psalms, especially in Psalms 113 through 118. These are called the Hallel, or the You Praise Psalms. But it's not until Revelation 19 that we find this word, hallelujah, this word that we are so familiar with. Now, that's an interesting piece of information, but it actually really matters, and it matters to this story. You see, those Hallel Psalms, they're sung at Passover. 
Psalm 113 to 114 are sung before you eat the Passover meal. Psalm 115 through 118 are sung after the Passover meal. Now the Passover meal, of course, is the remembrance, the celebration of when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. If you remember, the gospels tell us that on the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed, he and his disciples first celebrated a Passover meal together. And then after that meal, Jesus institutes a new one, a new supper that will celebrate not freedom from slavery in Egypt, but God's final victory, freedom from evil and sin. And not just deliverance for Israel, but deliverance for all God's people. In our passage today, it's not only the first time we find the word hallelujah, but it comes up four times. There are four of these rare hallelujahs. It's like what's happening is so dramatic that for John to describe it, he just needed a new word. (laughs) After the fall of Babylon, that mother of harlots we talked about last week, there are four hallelujahs that are shouted around the throne in heaven because of what God is doing, because Jesus' disciples are being vindicated. They are being redeemed. They are about to receive their reward. What's incredible about the way this is put together is that Revelation 19 shows us that in the midst of the chaos of the final judgment that we've talked about the past couple weeks, God is working to rescue and redeem his people. Even as he's judging and defeating evil, he's making preparations for the greatest dinner party ever thrown. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Sabrina had major power issues this week. She was supposed to preach this week, Um, but I think you just got power like this morning. (laughs) I mean, not too long ago. Um, I'm grateful that she gave me the opportunity to preach this week. After all the craziness that we've heard in Revelation over the past couple weeks and after all the craziness that we have experienced in our lives this past week, this text today is a beautiful interruption because it reminds us that the way scripture speaks about the relationship between God and his people, it's remarkable and it is beautiful the way that the God of the universe chooses to describe his relationship with us is sweet and tender and intimate. It's really shocking when you think about it. Listen to this from Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then Ezekiel 16, later I passed by and when I looked at you and I saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. The Apostle Paul, when he's talking about earthly marriages, he's referencing Jesus and his care for the church when he does it. He says, husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. 
Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with wholeness. And leave that up there for a second, Noah. That passage comes right after what some people find is a troubling passage in, in Ephesians where it says, wives, obey your husbands. Wives, obey your husbands. Trust them. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives just like Christ did for his church. If I love my wife according to that scripture that's on my screen right now, It would be to her benefit to trust and obey me. It would make her better. It would make us better and more united and more whole. If I loved her the way Christ loves the church, it is not about obedience because of patriarchy. It is about Christ's love for the church and what that looks like in our homes. You see, scripture uses so many images to help us understand the depths of God's love for us, but one of the most prominent descriptions throughout scripture of the relationship between God and his people is that of a husband and wife. Revelation 19 is describing the beginning of the end. This is the moment that creation has waited for since the Garden of Eden. God's people are just about to be reunited with him in Christ forever. And to describe that, God chooses to use the most intimate and loving of human relationships as his example. The covenant between a husband and a wife. Now, maybe you knew that. Maybe you were familiar with that language in scripture. But here's where I think it gets interesting. You see, in Jesus' day, there were steps that had to be taken before the marriage feast could begin. There was the engagement ceremony, there was preparation for the wedding, and then the wedding feast itself. Now, I know that that doesn't sound much different than what we go through today, but there are some really important details. And these details actually put the life and ministry of Jesus in context for us, and they help us understand what it means to be the beautiful bride that he's called us to be. So the first step is this engagement celebration, this ceremony. So here's how it happened. The groom-to-be who lived with his father would leave his father's house and would travel to the house of his bride-to-be. And when he did that, he had his best man at his side. Now the groom would meet with the bride's father and they would agree on a purchase price. (laughs) Okay, now don't get distracted by that language. It's not God's fault that we turn that into like ownership, right? (laughs) That's not what it sounds like. This wasn't about transferring property. It wasn't about owning a human. This practice was meant to acknowledge the truth that the bride was to be bought with a price. It would be costly to enter into this relationship. Now, as soon as that price was paid, the marriage was actually technically legal. There's one writer who says that the engagement ceremony was so binding that if the man died during the engagement period, the woman would be considered a widow. Breaking this covenant was the same as divorce. I wish in our culture we took engagement as seriously as that. Now, before the groom leaves the house, before he goes back to his father's house, the father of the bride gives him a cup of wine. And he drinks from that cup, and then he shares that cup with his bride. And when they did that, that sealed this covenant between the two of them. 
It was a promise they were making to one another that they would be faithful to one another while they waited for the great celebration to come at the wedding feast. The marriage was technically legal, but they weren't together quite yet. The bride was set aside for the groom because they both had work to do. And the cup symbolized the promise that they would be faithful to one another through that. Now, the next step, uh, the groom would leave the bride and go back to his father's house. And they might be apart from each other for as long as a year. And the reason for this was because he had to go back to his father's house and prepare a room for his bride. I want you to imagine it's a small village in Galilee in the first century. They lived in what were called insulas. You can think of them as like modular apartments. Every time you need a new one, you just build another one onto the side of one that already exists. Extended families lived together in these insulas. You had grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles. You had a courtyard in the middle. When a son married, they added to the insula. And he was the one responsible for building the new room onto his father's house. That's where he would care for and protect his bride. That's where they would raise their kids together. That's where they would live out married life. But he couldn't bring his bride home until his father signed off. (laughs) The permits had to be approved by dad. (laughs) So it was an anxious time even for the groom because he didn't know when the father would say, now it's ready. So during this year apart, the groom was preparing a room for the bride. The bride was preparing herself for her husband. And then the final step in the marriage process, the groom got dressed up all fancy and festive He had his best man at his side and then he brought some other friends along and they would make their way to the bride's house. And oftentimes they would do this at midnight or even later. Now they had an idea of when this might happen, but the bride didn't know the exact time or day when the groom would return. She just had to be ready because he could come at any moment. Women, (laughs) could you imagine not knowing when your wedding day would be? You had to put on your wedding dress every night and wait until it was your fiance's choice. You're going to trust that kind of decision to a man? But all that was part of the excitement. It was part of the fun. Jesus actually describes this in a parable in Matthew 25. Um, He's talking about something else, but he says the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom come out and meet him. And when he finally comes, the bride dressed in her finest linen, bright and clean, her maidens along with her, they carried their lamps, they go out and join the groom and his men in the field, and that's when the party would begin. Now, as I've told you these steps, I hope that you're seeing some connections. This chapter starts with four hallelujahs that are declaring that something profound and remarkable is about to happen. Something that's been promised since the beginning is about to be fulfilled. They remind us of the moment that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, but now tell us that there is a new freedom coming, and it's even greater. Because this is going to be freedom from sin and evil and everything that has fought so hard to separate us from the love of God. These hallelujahs cry out because God is redeeming and vindicating his people once and for all. And he's doing it because he wants to, because he chooses to, 
because he loves us. And we say this here a lot. God's love for us is not because we deserve it. It's not because we are owed it. He loves us simply because he loves us. And as a sign of just how intense his love for us really is, he chooses to enter into this eternal covenant with us, to take us as his bride. He chooses to go through these steps to make everything official. First, he bought us at a price, the greatest price that could be paid. And then after he paid the price for us, we're reminded that he sealed that promise with a cup of wine that he first shared with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. But that cup of wine is one that we share together every month. It's the cup of the new covenant, the promise made between a husband and a wife. Every time you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's saving death until he returns again. You're proclaiming the price he paid so that he could claim us as his own. We're proclaiming that we are legally bound and we are going to proclaim that until he returns to take us home. The second thing he does before he comes back, before he returns, he has work to do. In John 14, he tells his disciples, he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. We read that passage at memorial services all the time and it's appropriate. But can you see now in context? That's wedding language. That's marriage language. That makes that passage read at memorial service that much sweeter. While the groom is preparing this room, his spirit is here transforming us, making us ready to receive him. Because once we have entered into that covenant and the spirit's transformation has begun, Romans 8 tells us this, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. The engagement is official. The preparations for the feast have begun. The final celebration, that moment when the groom finally comes to receive, to take his bride to be with him forever, it is almost here. And when it comes, it'll be a celebration like none other in history. Now there is one big difference between these wedding traditions that I told you about and the way that this story is gonna end. It's a huge difference. But you're going to have to wait until we get to chapter 21 to see what it is. And I'm not going to tell you when we do that. You just have to come every week. So. Uh, but for today, like, can you see how connected this story has always been? Not only from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, but I'm talking about even within culture. That God would choose particular times in culture where there were certain practices that would really help to put on display this message that he is trying to share with us. The consistency of scripture, God's use of our own traditions and customs to tell us an even greater story. Can you see that at its heart, 
This is a love story. The story of a courtship, of an engagement, and a marriage feast. God's beloved son united with his sweet bride forever. Man, this is a lot easier to preach and a lot easier to hear than the last couple weeks, right? (laughs) But before we're done, if that's so what? So what? What does this have to do with discipleship today? Well, Daryl Johnson, who's the professor who uh, has really inspired and guided so much of my understanding of Revelation for the past 15 years, um, he says there's at least six things that this means for us today, but I'm just going to share three of them with you. So he says, first... This paints a powerful picture of the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And I want to read to you how he says it. He says, I love my children. I love my parents and my in-laws. I love my friends and colleagues. And then I've, I've watched him say this. I've heard him say this in person. This is how he does it. He says, but no one gets loved by me like my wife does. A little graphic, (laughs) a little intense, but it's beautiful and powerful and we get it. Now look, this kind of language, it might feel exclusive. I mean, there are many people who maybe will never marry or even in marriage will never experience the kind of love with another human that God's talking about. And maybe that's one of you and maybe you'd feel like you're missing out. But you have to remember that there are many other images in scripture that describe our relationship with God. One of that is a father and his child. I didn't have a healthy father-son relationship growing up. I don't know what it's like to be loved by a human father. But that doesn't mean that I can't understand the depths of God's love for me. We know what it's like to want to be loved, to want to be desired, to want someone to pay a great price, to prepare for us, to come back and take us, we all know what that feels like, that longing desire. Scripture's telling us that Christ is fulfilling it. The second thing it means, this engagement means that we are safe and we are secure. That we are safe and secure. After everything we read about judgment the past couple weeks, we need to hear right now that we are safe and we are secure. After everything we've been through, not only last week, but this past year, We need to be reminded that in the end, we are safe and we are secure. He has paid an incredible price. He has sealed that deal with the cup of the new covenant. He is all in. He is serious about us. There's a book in the Old Testament called the Song of Songs. Um, It's actually kind of inappropriate in many ways. Uh, Rabbis wouldn't let their young students read it because it was inappropriate, not The whole Bible isn't really safe for kids. Um, But some of its less uh, inappropriate sections say things like, my beloved is mine and I am his. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That book is about the courtship between God and his people. And it uses graphic language. But it's doing it on purpose because it's describing for us a love that's even more intimate and more passionate than we can imagine. It's not brotherly love. It's not erotic love. It's what scripture calls agape love. It's the love of God that is beyond anything that we can even imagine. And we're safe 
and secure in that love because we haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. It is a gift. He loves us simply because he loves us. And then the final thing is the part that we play. And our part in this story is to be loyal and to be ready. Discipleship is all about loyalty and readiness. It's the life that John has been calling us to all throughout the revelation. The price has been paid, the marriage is legal, it is assured. What's expected now of the bride is loyalty, faithfulness. And the easiest way to exercise faithfulness is to stay focused, to be constantly readying ourselves for his coming. Living every day as if that marriage could begin at any moment, going to bed each night, putting on that wedding dress, anticipating his coming, ready to go meet him in the field with those lamps and ready to celebrate. That's why discipleship matters. We've said it another way here in the past that we are to trust and obey. To trust and obey that God is good. That Jesus' journey to the cross that we will talk about for the next 40 days, it proves his deep and abiding passionate love for us. Trust and obey that his way is the way to true life, to real life, to the kind of life that we were created to live. And to trust that he's on his way, to be watching for him and to be ready to celebrate. Because every day we are one day closer to joining him in his father's house forever. Amen? I told you I had good news for you today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. Uh, grateful for a break. <laughs> Past few weeks have been tough. The language in scripture has been difficult to read. The things that we've faced here in this world have been challenging and hard and have pushed us to our limit. So we are thankful for a break. Thankful for the chance to take a deep breath and be reminded that in the midst of the storm, your love never fades, your love never fails. It is here. All we have to do is receive it and get ready. I pray that you would remind us of that each and every day because we don't know what's facing us tomorrow. In the midst of the troubles, remind us that your love for us is faithful and it's secure. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.